HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Essex Market. Essex Market is New York City's most historic public market, proudly located on Manhattan's Lower East Side. Find the freshest produce, meat, fish, and specialty foods from over 30 unique vendors. Learn more about the market's family of small neighborhood businesses at EssexMarket.nyc. This week on Meet and 3, we're looking at things that have changed and things that are still in flux. From mothers balancing new lifestyles to the social stigma surrounding pumpkin spice. You got rid of the star rating system and talked about, like, I'm not going to use the word ethnic when I talk about food. They recognized that safety was our motivation and, and they were very you know, receptive to the changes, understanding what we were trying to accomplish. A cupcake or a piece of bacon or a glass of rosé is not inherently gendered. Tune in to Meet and 3 HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll load. Knows that country music's gonna save your soul. The devil runs his groove in them rhythm and blues. That's him. It's gonna get you some in the end. Welcome back to the Speakeasy. I'm Souther Teague. And I'm Greg Benson. Hey, Greg. How are you today, buddy? Oh, I'm hanging in there, you know, <laughs> as well yeah. as anybody can. How about yourself? I mean, I, I continue to habitually ask the question, how are you, to people, even though when I am asked that question these days, my response is, I am declining to answer that question. <laughs> my my, uh, my we're, go-to we're, response, one that I've been very fond of recently, uh, vertical. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, beats horizontal, I guess. Yep, focus um, on the positives, man. Every day above ground is a good day. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, what? I mean, Jesus, especially after the, the month that we've had. I mean, we're, what, two weeks into November, and I feel like I've aged about 10 years since Halloween. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was a pretty uh, intense week. <laughs> it was. But, you know, I mean, now that... It's starting to, you know, now that we are beginning to, you know, poke our heads up out of the prairie dog town of politics that we've all been living in and kind of look around at the world around us and and get back to our lives now that we're not all obsessively doom scrolling 538 and, and, you know, refreshing the New York Times page every 30 (laughs) seconds, like it, it, it brings up an interesting thing that I know you and I have talked about a lot, which is like, where 
I'll change the operative word to this. Why don't we think it's okay to talk about politics in bars anymore? Like, because you, you and I were having this conversation recently of like, you know, the bar used to be the place to go and talk politics and news and whatever else was going on. And there seems to have been this, this swift but subtle 180 where now it's, you know, the, the focus of hospitality is not on that. It's on, you know, respecting everyone's political differences and being polite and et cetera, et cetera. And while I think that there is something to be said for that argument, why have we decided that bars aren't the place for that anymore? You know? Yeah, you know me, of course. I'm in the camp of I think this sort of discourse belongs in a bar. And I think that I'm, I'm in a minority uh, at this point uh, when it comes to hospitality. Um, I think that most operators, owners, and even just bartenders themselves would prefer to not uh, have those conversations happen in front of them or at their bar uh, because it creates tension. And, um, you know, I'm not one to back away from that. I, I If you recall, I had an, I had an entire establishment that was uh, based entirely around talking about politics, where we gave 100% of our profits to charities that were being defunded or threatened by the government. Um, and we encouraged that discourse. And as you said, the question you posed in the beginning is, you know, when did we stop, right? Because we used to do that uh, as common, right? Uh, the, the, bar, the bar was the pub. That's short for public house. Um, that's where you went often to get caught up on the news of the day in your town or even national news. That's where you went to pick up your mail. That's where you uh, went to, you know, maybe have a meal or, or certainly a drink. Um, and, and honestly, to catch up with your own, you know, neighbors and townsfolk, because you may have, you know, back in those days, you may live literally miles apart with nothing but a wagon to get you from one to the other. Um, and, and so, of course, we had these conversations at, at those places, and maybe they got spirited and maybe they got heated, but at least they were out there. And I think that the problem today is that we reserve those conversations for private company, but in that private company, you're almost overwhelmingly likely to be surrounded by people who already think the way that you do. So there is no discourse and there is no ability to sort of move the needle in any direction. And I frankly believe that's how we wound up in the situation that we're in here in America where we're so, uh, I mean, according to the numbers, almost evenly divided. Absolutely. And, I, and, I, and I'll add to that. Um, I will add to the fact that we reserve it for private company with people who we already know and like and are pretty sure agree with us and strangers on the internet who we can say awful shit to things that we would never say to someone who is like, you know, a casual acquaintance or anybody to their face. And maybe that's part of the problem. You know, it's like by creating this anonymized space where you can just heap vitriol on a perfect stranger with, from a position of extreme safety, it has made these discussions that, you know, could get pretty heated, but you know, would have to, you'd have to keep the temperature below a boiling level because you would be face to face with that human being that you were having this discussion with. Uh, now it's just raised the temperature of it so much that it's just too, it's too, it's too hot to handle. You know, it's like, there's a fear of bringing it into a public space because the discord, the level of discourse is at like a, a 15 out of 10. And it's just, you know, we're, we're afraid that a simple, political discussion is impossible with people who we don't already know agree with us, you know? 100% agreed. And of course, you know, the advent of uh, the ease of accessibility to information over the internet uh, only brings to my mind the the old uh, saw of, uh, you know, a little information is a dangerous thing. Um, you know, people have, they're armed themselves with 
tidbits uh, of things that they find uh, that, of course, are in line with what they believe, and they don't do any critical searching to find out uh, maybe that there's a counter argument, uh, or they don't give it any credence because they, you know, you, you go hunting for the thing that you want to see. So, um, yeah, it, it, and then yeah, the anonymity of being able to fire vitriol at one another uh, via the internet is, I think, compounds the whole situation. And I don't know. Uh, you know, I'm I'm open to it. I'm willing to have it. Um, but I am there in the room to be a part of the conversation. I'm there in the room to sort of referee or moderate conversations between people in my bar. Um, I'm, I'm the end all be all when it comes to whether or not you can continue to stay here and have that conversation. Um, so I get it, uh, that, uh, that a lot of people don't want to have that on their laps when they're just trying to show people a good time. But, you know, again, it's my truly considered opinion that the fact that we, for as long as we have now, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out there and say at least 20 years, we've always been saying, don't talk about religion or politics in the bar, right? Um, I think that in that 20 years, we've, we've, we've really shaped what, what we're, you know, we, we, we built our, we, we made our own bed and now we're having to lie in it. And I think that's really what brings down to the, the split. Um, and I know that this is a different situation for uh, products and brands. I know that brands and products can't, uh, you know, necessarily put their opinions forward um, because they're not there to talk about them, you just have something on your label or something in your, uh, um, you know, in your in your messaging, and that's it. You're just a message going out at the bar. I'm 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 willing to listen as well. Um, so let's bring on someone who's got a product and maybe talk a little bit about politics, but then let's talk about their product. Who who we got in the studio with us today, Greg? Uh, today in the studio we've got Patrick <laughs> Miller, the founder and distiller of Faccia Bruto. Patrick, dude, thank you so much for coming in, man. How are you? Doing all right. I'm vertical, as we say. <laughs> Good paying, answer. Yeah, you're paying attention. Yep. Uh, uh, Patrick, where are you uh, reaching out to us from? Everybody knows we're in the virtual studio. We're not all together right now. So where are you at right now? Uh, I'm sitting in the sanitary Pfizer building uh, on this beautiful gray day. Oh, kind um, of right over, right over there by like no strand and flushing? Yep, yep. Yeah. Um, so yeah, just hanging out over here today. Uh, right on. Um, so listen, you and I have maybe at least a couple of things in common. I think right away we both love Amaro. Um, but also you are a, are a chef. I, you know, I was a chef as well um, uh, for a long time, for 12 years. Uh, but I've been behind the bar now for 20, which is crazy. Um, uh, so talk to us a little bit about like the beginnings of you and, and, and then we'll talk about what you're doing now. Um. Depends on how far back you want to go for the beginnings of me, but we could just say great, that. great grandfather, two, two, <laughs> two greats back. <laughs> um, so we could just, you know, say that I've been uh, in and around kitchens for um, about 20 years. Uh, and it was kind of like something that helped me get through college and something that informed my decision to go to cooking school. And, um, you know, after that, I really just cooked in a few restaurants in San Francisco in um in spain for a little while and then in new york um for the last you know almost 10 years so yeah i mean partway through uh the opening the working at rucola restaurant which is a restaurant i opened in um, borham hill about 2011 i uh you know i was just like 36 years old maybe so i was like 
been doing it for a while, been getting the phone calls from the dishwashers that didn't want to come in because they couldn't tie their shoes or the line cooks that were in jail or <laughs> the line cooks that, you know, had their wife throw an Xbox at them. And so their hand was all messed up. So I, I kind of like almost reached the end of my tether with that. And so I, um, you know, one Christmas I made some uh, orange bitters for my family as like a DIY poor line cook sort of gift. Um, and my mom bought me this small five gallon um, oak barrel uh, to kind of like encourage whatever that might have been. And uh, it kind of led me down the path to where I am today. So, um, yeah, hopefully that's concise. I mean, as with every tale, you know, there's plenty of color that you can either leave in or take out. But, um, you know, uh, so 2011, you opened the the restaurant. Is the restaurant still operating? Still operating. They were open um, the entire time and they're still going. So, Which, so, so they're still, crazy. still operating even through, through COVID. Through COVID. Yeah. Did amazing. Not, did not close in true Rucola fashion. They did not close at all. Um, yeah, that restaurant only closed one day a year, and that was Christmas Day, and that was it. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's very that's very chefy of you. You know, when I when I was a chef, I was the same way, and that translates to my bar. Like we 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 hell or high water, we open the doors. Um, I think that's it's because for me anyway, it's because uh, though the bar is mine, it belongs to the guest, right? I want I want it to be there for them when they need it, and I think honestly, in some of those terrible times, is when they need it the most. Oh yeah, I mean, we were still open serving guests dinner on the night that's that hurricane Sandy hit um, wow. up until maybe like nine or 10 o'clock at night. And it was just me and my buddy, John. So it was just the two of us. There were still like 30 people in the restaurant. And I was like, are you guys fucking crazy? Like I like, at that point, I would, <laughs> they're, they're like no crazier than you. You're open. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, trust me, if it had been up to me, I would have been home, <laughs> but it wasn't up to me. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was just me and my buddy, John, and I was like, dude, I think we should close. This is getting bad. So we, you know, fed the last couple people. He lives to this still lives like two or three blocks away from Rukla, so he could like walk home. But I had to find a cab somewhere on Atlantic Avenue. This is like obviously before the advent of all the um, like Uber and Lyft and all that shit. So hopped in a cab that would actually take me back to Manhattan because nobody wanted to drive back to Manhattan, especially at night or because of Sandy. So couple those two things together. But yeah. yeah, I mean, anyway, so all, all that to say that Rucola definitely was a restaurant that catered to making sure that the, the, the people in the neighborhood had somewhere to go. Yeah. And, and, that's and the next thing. day, Patrick was like, I make bitters now. I'm done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm out. So, yeah, let's, let, let's talk about that barrel. What was the first thing that went into that barrel? I'm sure that planted the seed into what has now become uh, a faccia bruto. But like, what, what, what was the barrel? What was its first use? Yeah, it... Uh, I didn't really know what I was doing. Surprise, surprise. So I just kind of like, uh, like listen, man, no, I still don't. There's, there's no like uh, hard and fast recipes for these, you know, so they're like, nobody wants to talk about what they put in it. And uh, the resources for finding information on what goes into, you know, different Amari are tough to come by. So um, yeah, they're very tight lipped uh, Amari yeah. makers. They're very yeah. um, uh, proprietary. And I think in a weird way, paranoid. So, uh, more on that later, though, because I, I, I would very much like to expand on that. But yeah. um, so I, I found some stuff and uh, I, it was sort of a ferment, right? So there were probably like 40 things in it. It was passable. Um, I didn't go blind. Uh, <laughs> so Simpsons. Once, once we kind of, uh, 
you know, worked our way through that, I was like, okay, this is kind of cool. Like I made myself booze, like this is fun. So I took that recipe and kind of whittled it down a little bit and um, aged it for like, you know, five months or whatever. And I had my bartenders at Rucola try it and they were like, yeah, this is pretty good. Like, you know, maybe keep trying to do this. So um, it was through kind of like making these tiny five gallon batches in my apartment uh, that I was able to kind of hone in on one recipe for an Amaro, which I should be releasing in December called Amaro Garini, named after my grandmother. Um, and once I realized, okay, cool, like I can make an Amaro that people think is pretty good, like that takes five months. So what am I going to do for the rest of the time? Like how am I going to generate revenue while I have shit sitting in a barrel for all that time? So Right. You can't, just, can't, you can't just keep making every day and barreling and then get to that five-month point and then start opening. You've got to generate revenue to, to store those things, to have those things, right? Yeah, exactly. To pay rent, you know? So um, <laughs> I had to come up with a recipe for an aperitivo and a fernet, even though like some fernets are aged. I was like, I don't think this needs to be. Um, and so, yeah, so now I have those two products, which I can pump out in like two weeks. Um, and those are pretty much what pay the bills. Um, the Amari take longer and, you know, are, I'm working on kind of like getting a smooth sort of production schedule as I've been picked up by T Edwards. And so I'm trying to figure out, you know, how often I need to make whatever, like a two barrel batch or a four barrel batch of it. So, you know, progress. And, and now when you say barrel, you're talking full size, right? Yeah. 53 gallon barrel. So yes, you're, not, um, you're not still, you're not still whacking them out five gallons at a time. No, <laughs> no just Extra reserve small batch. Yeah, exactly. Now, no, I, uh, I mean, and that is something we can talk about now or later, but I definitely am not one of those uh, like local small batch companies. I don't want to create that perception. There's no handwriting on the label. There's no, you know, I, I want to give the appearance of a distillery that's been around for a while that people are like, oh, this is, this is cool. This place isn't like all the rest of like the local small batch places. Um, just because there's enough, there's enough of that and it's respectable, but I, you know, I'm just going in a different way. Right. I'm, you know, Obviously, I'm pretty passionate about Amari and bitters in general. Um, you, you may say I love them. Um, uh, but my curiosity really is piqued when you talk about how uh, how did you make that jump? I have you know read Brad Thomas Parsons' books, and I've certainly uh, tinkered around with making my own bitters, and even one time I did make an Amari. Um, but what made, I guess, the scalability? How do you go from, I'm doing this as a hobby in a five-gallon barrel to I'm now making 53-gallon barrels and I've got a distillery? Like where and how does one kind of make that leap? Uh, it was a long transition because I, so like the last two years that I was at the restaurant, I had two sous chefs underneath of me and it was only because I knew that I was going to be leaving at some point and um, I needed somebody to take over. So we kind of promoted from within and we're trying to kind of like educate people on how to run the restaurant when I was not there. So I eventually went down to three days a week, uh, the last year that I was there and just played backup, you know, like everybody else was in charge of everything. I just was there to help them out. So during that period of time, it gave me, you know, a few more days a week to get the business plan going, to get investors, you know, hooked up and together, um, to submit all the paperwork I needed to, to, you know, get the liquor lawyers to help me out with certain things. And, um, so it was, a, it was a long, I would say it was probably about a four year process because I started the business plan and the, you know, the pitch deck and stuff, um, maybe three years before I left. And then 
once I kind of figured out, okay, I'm definitely going to do this. Um, I then, you know, started telling people to put the wheels in motion to like slowly replace me. So, uh, and then once, you know, I was able to convince enough people to give me money to start this thing. Um, I, you know, talked to some liquor lawyers who've done this for a million businesses in New York city and they helped me submit all the paperwork. And, um, then it was just a waiting game. Um, so yeah, it was a, it was a slow process for sure. I mean, I, 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 um, I always say it happens the same way. Everything happens, right? Really slowly at first and then really quickly. Um, yes. I'm sure that's exactly what went down. Um, what, how much funding yeah, did it take to get exactly you kind of happened. off the ground? And, and do you have like um, an actual distiller or someone who's very much was just in that? Or are you just out there breaking, kind of breaking it off by yourself? Doing the deliveries myself in a, in a car, you know, putting everything together, batching everything, bottling everything, labeling everything. Um, I was the only person calling, trying to get accounts. Uh, and then, you know, uh, as luck would have it, I, you know, bothered the right uh, distributor and they decided to take me on. And so now it's, uh, it's a, a bit more of a sprint than a, a, a slow crawl. So it's good. Uh, well, I, yeah, mean, yeah, I mean, that's, that's gotta be a, a hell of a journey, you know, like five years and then, uh, launching in the middle of the 90 car pileup that has been 2020. We've, we've got to take a quick break here to hear from some of our sponsors, but when we come back, I definitely want to talk with you a little bit more about what, what that whole journey was like. Uh, so stick around and we'll be right back with Patrick Miller of Faccia Bruto. Essex Market is a food lover's paradise with over 30 unique vendors selling everything from one-of-a-kind spices to daily grocery staples and even scratch-made prepared foods. At HRN, we believe that buying from local purveyors is one of the best ways to support an equitable food system. That's why this holiday season we'll be shopping from the vendors at Essex Market. Not only are their offerings fresh and delicious, they're also affordable and sold by a community of passionate small business owners. This connection is what has made Essex Market a stalwart in New York City's food landscape for the last 80 years. Now located in a brand new building, Essex Market continues to be one of the most unique food experiences in New York. At Essex Market, you'll find Lower East Side locals shopping for plantains and avocados alongside visitors browsing freshly baked bread and locally produced cheeses. If this gets you hungry, order from one of the market's many prepared food vendors, serving up dishes from Peru, Thailand, Morocco, and beyond. Learn more and shop online for local same and next day delivery at EssexMarket.nyc. And we're back. You're listening to The Speakeasy on Heritage Radio Network. Uh, Greg and I are in the virtual studio today with Patrick Miller of Faccio Bruto. And just before the break, uh, we were talking about sort of what led you up to the point where you um, decided to make that leap and open up a distillery of your own and create some products. And then, of course, uh, you decided to do it in, in a very optimistic year, 2020. <laughs> uh, walk us through the process. <laughs> um, so. Yeah, I mean, it definitely was not my choice to start uh, trying to sell uh, niche Italian spirits uh, during a complete like lockdown pandemic uh, year. But um, the way that the government functions or doesn't 
uh, really kind of dictated when I could start. So I submitted all my paperwork in May of last year. Um, I received my paperwork back approved in February of this year. So I had no choice. Uh, I had been paying rent on a space from July to February, making no money, um, just burning through what I had in the bank account. And um, I was like, all right, well, I have, there's no choice, right? Like I have to just start this. Um, so yeah, I started making, you know, a couple 50 gallon batches of the Aperitivo and Fernet. I made a couple, you know, 50 gallon batches of the two Amari that I have. And once, um, once the Aperitivo and Fernet were ready, I was like, okay, well, I, I had been making them in my apartment in these 15 gallon plastic drums, which my girlfriend lovingly calls Jeffrey Dahmer barrels. And <laughs> I, I, so going from 15 gallons to like 50, Romantic. Uh, yeah, or, or 80, which is what they are, uh, was quite a step because the recipes are kind of like pastry recipes. They don't multiply well. Um, yeah, I was, I, was, I was definitely going to ask that. You can't just do no. the math and scale up. You've got to make tweaks and adjustments as you get larger batches, right? 100%. I mean, and it's, which is part of the art, I think, in, in doing it, you know? Um, so, and also the reason why I made 50 gallon batches instead of 80 is because if it did, if something wasn't right, I could just kind of like try to fix it. Uh, but they came out okay. And, uh, you know, I'd let them rest and figure out what I wanted to change a couple weeks down the road. But um, I just hit the pavement running. Uh, one of my investors has a wholesale. Uh, foods company and he was part of the agreement was he was going to do all the deliveries well COVID hit and he had to pivot to home delivery so he had no trucks he had no, no way to do the deliveries for me so I was like well what the fuck am I going to do I can't just like take these on the fucking subway so he got his Subaru licensed and I would borrow it every Wednesday and brought it to the space at Pfizer you know took the orders on Tuesday wheeled the, uh, the cases into the back of the Subaru and drove around Brooklyn and Manhattan, um, dropping off to people that, you know, wanted to take a chance. Um, so for the last, um, I don't know what, from, I would say April until September, I was doing that. So, uh, like, you know, like some, kind of, like some kind of peripatetic vendor cruising the streets and yeah. hawking, hawking your wares. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I definitely would carry sample bottles with me. And if I drove by a you know a wine shop or uh, a, a restaurant that I saw had like outdoor seating, I definitely went in there. I was like, hey, sorry, I know cold calling sucks. Uh, I'm really not that kind of guy, but this is not a normal time. So just try these and let me know what you think. Um, so, yeah, it was it was. Uh, it was a hustle, you know, having to do it all, all myself, but it was good because I got to meet, you know, the proprietors, the owners, the managers of all these different places. And they got to put, you know, half of a face to a name and, um, you know, get to meet me and try the product. So it, the hardest part I think was just like places not wanting to try anything new. They're like, well, listen, we're just doubling down on what we know will sell and what we know customers like. So we're doubling down on Campari. We're doubling down on some of the other local brands who shall remain nameless. Um, and so that I think was the hardest part, to be honest. It was just like, listen, this stuff is cheaper than what you're paying for the other stuff. And it's delicious. So why not give it a shot? You know. So that was the hardest part, I think, honestly, about this whole thing was how slowly it had to kind of spread, unlike the coronavirus. 
<laughs> right. And, you know, I, I see your dilemma in that uh, scenario and I see the operator's dilemma in that scenario. You know, uh, yeah. for me, for me, it was frankly uh, and has been, frankly, a simple uh, uh, a freeze. We, we, we didn't make a single order of any kind um, from March 15th uh, until uh, well into uh, uh, June. And even then it was just to kind of replenish the things that, again, we knew we were going to sell. We couldn't, uh, in our right minds, uh, spend money on anything. Like uh, we were down to the place where I was running to, uh, you know, the local key foods to pick up toilet paper because I wasn't going to order toilet paper. You know, so uh, operations standpoint, uh, it was it was a brutal, still is brutal, but it was at first. You know, when we had so much uncertainty, you know, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I guess the, the easiest example, and we certainly talked about it and made fun of. Uh, made fun of me and myself and my bar, uh, is that in the beginning, you know, Amore Margo was selling a spicy margarita. You know what I mean? I had a vodka hibiscus lemonade on the menu. Those are things yeah. that are so far afield of what I normally do, but right, I, right. I had to do those things because those are the things that I had on hand based on what was in the building. And those are the things that people were, were requesting because they're just, they're, they weren't my normal clientele. They were literally walking by, uh, you know, it's, and it was, you know, get, coming into summer and, I couldn't, in my good conscience, say, "Sure, pull up a table and sit down and have a have a delicious Manhattan." It's 110 degrees out, um, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I had to, I had to, you know, reformat and, and swallow a little bit of pride and and do some things to make the business survive. And and we're still we're still struggling, you know. Uh, we don't know with great confidence that we're going to survive. But if I'm going down, I'm fucking going down swinging. Yeah, yeah, I get that. But so all that to say, you know, you, you've ventured into a market share that is um, hmm, difficult <laughs> in, ge- in general. Like it's just in general difficult. You know, you're trying to sell people on a product that by, by its very nature is, uh, you know, uh, not something that, that the palate is necessarily looking for at first. It's, a, it's a, literally, I think of Amari as an acquired taste. You know, we... We we love sweets right out of the womb. We we are delighted by sour. We we need savory. We obviously require salt, but bitter you have to acquire a taste for. So, like there, there's that hurdle as well. Luckily, uh, there's people you know myself included. I think out there that's educated the consumer a pretty good deal. So maybe we've laid some groundwork for you. How how are the people who are willing to try? How are they receiving? I mean, I think people who have tried it say, "Wow, this is good." You know, like they. They enjoy it. And I, I do uh, know that I definitely stand on the shoulders of people before me who have put products into the marketplace and people who've, you know, opened people's eyes to bitter stuff other than just the shot of Fernet Branca, which it, uh, surprises most their first few times. But um, yeah, they the, the reception has been great, you know, and that made me feel like, okay, this is, this is worthwhile, you know. And I think part of why the... the the reception, the positive reception has and hasn't surprised me is because I did have people that I went to while I was testing recipes, especially for the aperitivo and the fernet. Um, you know, I went to Grand Army Bar, you know, it's one of the sister restaurants of Rucola. And when Damon Bolte and Kevin Baird were there, I had them try my stuff. And I was just like, tell me what you don't like. Like, don't tell me what you like about it. Because, I mean, I'm happy that you like how much orange it has or whatever, but like if it tastes too woody, if it's too bitter, if it's too sweet, if it's unbalanced, like tell me what you hate. And, um, it was because I had those guys kind of give me critical feedback that uh, I was able to kind of fine tune it. So 
when I made the larger batches, not in the Jeffrey Dahmer containers, I was like, I think this will come out pretty well. And when people were like, hey, this is good, I was like, okay, cool. The fact that I put my trust and faith in people who knew what they were doing um, paid off. So, I mean, yeah, it sounds like it obviously it paid off. And, and uh, I think it's um, uh, fortunate that you're not the type of person who maybe can't take a critique or is too bullheaded to change something. Um, and I hope that those people, uh, you know, guided your, your hand a little bit. Uh, obviously, you don't want to leave leave behind your ethos and the thing you're looking for. But if you get some guidance from from people who are professionals and who are willing to be honest with you, that's the other thing. It's honestly pretty difficult sometimes to find someone who's willing to, at first crack, uh, kind of give you the truth. You know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Which is why I was like, you know, I would keep on taking them samples like every few weeks whenever I had like a new batch ready, and I was like, you don't tell me that it's good just to make me happy because I'm trying to start a business. And if you tell me that this is good and people are like, Oh, this is gross. Then you're just setting me up for failure, you know? So like, help me out. And I'm sure the guys at grand army all hated that. <laughs> I'm sure they all hated the <laughs> weekly infusion of free samples. Yeah. It's like, yeah, Oh yeah, it. no, it just, it just needs a little bit more work. We'll see you again next week, Patrick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Stop Same by with our, stop by with our weekly leader. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, let me, I mean, how, how is the, uh, you know, now that, now that it's, it's out there in the world, I mean, what's the, uh, the, the overall reception been like, like, how is it, how has it been and how has it been for you? I mean, over the past few months, we've been talking to a lot of people who have had projects that have come to fruition in a time when it's impossible to have a launch party or celebrate, or even like have your friends high five you on a job well done. Like, well, mm-hmm. how has that been for you to kind of, you know, reach this finish line and sort of look around and say, okay, well, world's still messed up. Now what, you know? Yeah, it's been, uh, it's, it's been great. Um, honestly, because up until about maybe two months ago, the bank account was starting to look real bad. Um, it was getting down there and I was like, listen, like I have savings and I can just like plug the savings into it, but I really wanted the business to be able to sustain itself. Right. Like, and I fully taking into account that these are really fucked up times, but, um, luckily I was able to kind of like get T Edwards to, to sign off on it and they really liked it. So, uh, you know, they really kind of saved my ass, um, to be honest. So it has been uh, wonderful because I am able to actually like utilize, I, I was at the point the other day where I didn't have any empty tanks for me to filter something into so I could bottle it. And I was like, wow, that's that I feel like is progress. Like I need more stuff in order to make more stuff. So, um, it's felt very good to be able to feel something other than fear of losing everything. You know, it's just fear of supplying enough. Um, so I'll take that. Yeah. Right. Which is still, which is still quite a fear in its own right. Right. Like, uh, you, you have to be conscious of growth and speed of growth. And and speaking of that, so now you've got T Edwards that's here in, is that just here in the city? Are you statewide in New York? How does that work? And what, what are your plans for scaling up? So they, um, are, they have kind of relationships, I believe, uh, with distributors in 47 states, 46 states. So they have distribution in New York state, Connecticut, New Jersey, um, 
Chicago and LA directly. Um, so I don't need to go through a secondary distributor. Uh, so right now um, we're working on, you know, New York City, more places in Brooklyn, more, you know, new places in Manhattan that are opening up, maybe some of the bigger house, the bigger, you know, places like Astor. Um, and because I get a lot of people in Manhattan who are like, where can I get your stuff? And I'm like, uh, there, are, there are a few places now, but there aren't a ton yet. So we're working on Manhattan well, is the long story short there. But, I, you know, it's in New Jersey. Uh, it's in upstate New York. Um, and I think 2021 we'll bring on Chicago and uh, California. I'm from California, so my parents are always like, when is this going to happen? When can we buy your stuff here? Um, so, yeah, I think that'll that'll be the, kind of like the next uh, expansion. Right. I mean, I would encourage you, at least during this time when the restrictions are lifted to uh, anyone who's asking you where they can buy it, you know, you should point them to any place, any bar that carries it. They can sell by the bottle now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. um, Absolutely. So, you know, it doesn't have to just be the liquor stores, um, at least for now. Uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's, a, it's been a, um, I don't want to call it a lifeline, but it's certainly been like a little bit of a buoy out there for me to grab onto as we've been, we've been doing some bottle sales, especially now that we've opened our retail segment, you know, every, 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 not every, I shouldn't say every many bars here in New York city are converting to this model of sort of general store. And I'm, I'm, I'm following suit. Uh, we already sold a lot of retail items in the in the bar, and now we've just expanded and and given the relaxed uh, restrictions, we've expanded into bottle sales as well. So that's a that's a good avenue for you to reach out to during this time. Yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. So expansion through New York and then Chicago next year, and hopefully California as soon as possible. And what would that mean for you, uh, like facilities wise? I'm certain you've planned this into your growth, but. How does one go from, you know, being being so close on production that you're almost out of barrels to amping it up by multiple states worth of potential customers? Uh, I mean, that is uh, I'm kind of learning as I go with that. Um, I am just checking the depletion reports every month from them, seeing how how fast they're going through stuff. I mean, T. Edwards has placed order for a you know, 60, 65 cases of booze every month for the past three months. Um, so I feel like as long as I can pump out at least one to two pallets every month worth of stuff, uh, that'll kind of get me into, you know, into good expansion territory. Uh, you know, other than that, I just have to keep buying barrel racks and barrels, um, which are not that expensive. So that's a plus, but space is a thing, you know? So um, I, may have to take over a space next door or move into a slightly bigger space in the coming year. But, um, I'm, I mean, I'm my only employee right now, so I'm, I've definitely learned how to make it work, uh, alone, but I, like, I have one guy who comes in and helps me, uh, label and, uh, case up product, uh, who is actually a chef who has left the business who also wants to do this. So he is, we're of the same mind. Um, but for the most part, it's just, you know, I, I do like all of the macerating, um, the barreling, the blending, that kind of stuff. And when I need like an extra pair of hands, I'll call them up and we'll bust out a bunch of bottles. This last weekend I had to do, I think we cased up like 1,250 bottles. Uh, so I definitely had a couple of other friends who had been quarantining pretty hard, uh, Yikes. to come and help out. Uh, so we got pizza and tacos and stuff and busted out. But yeah, I mean, it's, that was like a real, 
moment where I was like, oh shit, this is fucking a lot of work. <laughs> a yeah, lot of- yeah. It's that scalability, you know. I I uh, I worked uh, with a bitters company back in the day, and we were at that stage of still hand filling, hand labeling, hand shrink wrapping, oh, uh, and you know, it was it was that point where the business was brisk enough to to necessitate that next growth step, but the money wasn't quite there yet to automate those things. So it was a tumultuous time to be a part of that. And it sounds like you're already kind of achieving that goal. And don't, don't, don't forget that is kind of the, the very definition of a growing pain, right? You're growing at a, at a rate that it's going to pain you to either continue to do it the way you're doing it or pain you to upscale your facilities so that you can do it in a quicker way. Um, and then you'll, that's a cycle that I think probably continues forever. Um, oh, yeah. So I mean, you're listed uh, in your notes here as a distillery. Are you distilling on site or do you purchase the grant? This, and, and also, what is your base if you're willing to share? Yeah, of course. So, no, no we purchase uh, the neutral grain spirit. Um, mm-hmm. I do have a Rotovap that I use, which is, in case people aren't familiar, it's just a device that allows you to distill at room temperature. Um, so, I, I have a small one of those to distill samples of products that I make so I know that the ABV going into the bottle is correct. Um, so t- I technically, it, I am a micro rectifier, um, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> and what was your next what was your question? I'm sorry. Uh, I think I just said, I think you answered it. I, I said, okay. are you distilling on site or are you purchasing? And oh. I said, what, what is your yeah. base? And you said it's neutral grain spirit. So Yep, yep. Non-GMO neutral grain spirit uh, from the Midwest. Yeah. Well, speaking of recipes, you know, I mean, it's one of the the defining characteristics of people in our world that were, you know, creative, curious and restless. I, I can't imagine that, you know, finding success with the recipes that you have out there, your brain isn't already cooking up other ideas of like, oh, it'd be fun to try this and this and this. Like, is there what what are you looking forward to next as the brand expands and moves? Is there any any sort of goal in the future that you see where it's like, oh, if we just hit this mark, then I can start fucking around with this recipe, which is what I really want to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, y- yes. Um, first, I-, I guess, okay, so I'll answer your question first, but y- you reminded me when you said recipes about um, the, um, I suppose, the visibility of, of what is in the product. But the, ne- the next few things I'm going to, definitely mess around with our uh, green chartreuse because I feel it was recommended to me by um, one of the people who works at T Edwards because she was like, listen, there's really kind of only one and it's everybody knows it, but it's like really sweet and it's very alcoholic. So like if you can come up with something that's similar to that, I think you would have a a winner. So I've been messing around with that uh, to marginal success. Um, so there's that. I'm also thinking of doing a Namaro that's like a Felsina, which is like a Ramazzotti in case people need a brand name. Um, just because, I mean, Ramazzotti is just very drinkable and delicious. Um, no, it's a, it's a easy, it's an easy lover. Um, yeah, I, I call it the I call it the Dr Pepper of. Uh, it is. You know, it's got it's got those dry fruit notes and yeah. uh, that little bit of uh, uh, you know earthy sweetness. And if you pour it into a glass with some seltzer water, it kind of tastes like an alcoholic Dr Pepper to me. Absolutely. Um, and I think, uh, you know, just from the time that I was cooking in Spain, uh, I was in the Basque country and they drink uh, something called Pacharan there, which is just like a slow gin with a lot of like anise in it. And uh, that might be something down the road that I kind of mess around with. But, that, you know, part of what, what dictates what I make is what I think people will like. And it 
it's just from a mentality of coming from like, you know, being um, an owner of a neighborhood restaurant. It's like, what if, if the, if the restaurant is, is successful selling vegetables, then you're not going to be very successful selling beef tongue or, you know, tripe. And I tried it and that was what happened. You know, like people came for all the vegetable dishes that we had at Rucola, but nobody ever bought the beef tongue. And so even though I, it's something I love, I was like, okay, well, maybe that's not the thing for here. So I, I definitely uh, keep an eye on what I think people um, it really enjoy drinking and what they repeatedly buy. So um, I try to kind of like temper what I want with what I think people are into. Um, uh, oh, yeah. And of course, of course, you can't just you can't just do your own thing. You know, I, I, I'd be out of business long ago if I only served what I liked. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. Um, so the thing that the, the thing with the like mystique of Italian Amari and, and people, um, kind of like not sharing what they have or their process or anything like that. Like I, I understand it's, you know, uh, proprietary and it took them a long time to come up with, but at the same time, like I come from a, the world of, you know, restaurants and chefs who publish cookbooks with recipes in there. And, you know, if Ferran Adria can publish cookbooks and tell you exactly what the recipes are for whatever his carrot foam or whatever the fuck else crazy shit he came up with, like, why, why can't I tell people what's in my stuff? Like, what, what does that do to me? It doesn't do anything bad to me. Like if I, I'll give people every single ingredient, um, in any of my products, I won't give you the amounts, but I'll tell you what's in there. Because I feel like transparency is really uh, the hallmark of like sharing uh, and like moving something forward, you know. And so uh, there are a lot of people that I've met online, like particularly on Reddit. They have like an Amaro subreddit. And these people are like very, very nice and really into it. And uh, I, I, I don't know. I just firmly believe in the exchange of information. So uh, there's no cloak and dagger stuff here. If people want to come in and see what's up, I'm happy to have people come in. And I'm, I'm so happy to hear that, you know, because my experience, which is pretty vast among the Amari making set, uh, is quite the opposite. They're they're quite proprietary. They're a little bit paranoid. I think they all think that we're we're just going to rush out and make our own. When, with the exception of you, I guess that's not true. <laughs> um, no, I think they think that you know, if you if you know everything that's in uh, that's in Chinar, you're going to go make your own Chinar. And I'm like, no, you already make it, and we already like it. You just need to tell people. Um, you know, I've, yeah. I've, I've fought lots of battles with different Amari companies trying to convince them to at least give the top four flavor notes, even if those actual ingredients aren't in there. But if there's flavors of cacao, like say so on the label, because Americans are just not as um, ready to pick up a bottle and purchase it if they don't know what it's going to taste like when they pour it in a glass. Um, yeah. So uh, so I'm happy to hear that you're an open book on that. And I've convinced a few Amari makers to be a little bit more open, Montenegro and uh, uh, Montenegro to, to be specific and, and also to a certain degree Jägermeister, um, you know, working with those guys and getting getting them to, to reveal um, is opening up markets to them that they I don't think that they would have had had they not. Um, so I'm happy to hear that you're being uh, that good. Uh, so we're kind of to the end of the show here. Uh, Patrick, how can our listener, uh, get a hold of you or get a hold of your product? Uh, do you want to get a website, you got an Instagram or uh, something like that you want to post out? Yeah, I got both of those things. Um, yeah, the uh, website is just facciabrutospirits.com, two C's, two T's. 
uh, and the Instagram is the same. It's Facha Bruto Spirits, but there's underscores in between uh, Facha and Bruto and Bruto and Spirits. And we'll put um, all that. We'll make sure to put all that in the show notes as well, because it's a, you know, as as is common in the in the Italian, it's a little bit of some funky spellings. Um, and yes. we'll, tag, we'll tag you on Instagram so people can go and look at your stuff. Uh, and so far, I guess we already discussed it, but so far you can only get it here in New York. Is that correct? It's in uh, New York and New Jersey, upstate New York. Um, yeah. So those, those few places. Um, cool. So we'll, we'll let our listeners know to, to look out for it as it, as it grows. Um, you know, and hopefully maybe you can get yourself positioned at Astor, which can do delivery. Uh, so that would be out of state deliveries. That'd be, that'd be a good get for you. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, there are a few places like Leon and sons and gnarly vines, which I know will ship. Um, so a few retail stores will package up and ship out, out of state. So that's been kind of a lifesaver. People in like Oklahoma, you know, have been hitting me up people in, um, Louisiana actually called me and they were like, hi, I was like, hello, Louisiana. So I, it's been, <laughs> it's been interesting having, uh, you know, people from, places where you wouldn't necessarily expect reaching out. That's better than the alternative, man. Well, <laughs> You'd yeah. much rather have the people reaching out from Louisiana than, than pitching it to them and then being like, huh, what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, well, Patrick, thank you so, so much for joining us on the show today, man. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. Sure. Thank you both. And that is going to be it for us on the Speakeasy this week. Uh, be sure to tune into heritageradionetwork.org for lots more awesome shows about food and drink just like this one. And while you're there, uh, we'd like to ask you to consider clicking on that beating heart at the top of the homepage and uh, possibly becoming a member and supporting this awesome radio station that makes this content and lets me do this every single week. Uh, but for now, Patrick Souther, always a pleasure, guys. Thank you once again so much for a great show. Yeah, thanks for your time, Patrick. My pleasure. Cheers, everybody. Cheers, guys. So you don't shun the devil with your rock. Want more of the Speakeasy? Follow us and ask questions on Instagram at Speakeasy Podcast or on Twitter at Speakeasy Radio. You can find Damon at Damon Bolte, and you can find me at Creative Drunk on all platforms. Take a moment to write us a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite platform and give us a star rating, five if possible. If you're visiting New York City or a resident, stop by the studio and hang out with us during an episode. Reach out beforehand to make sure we'll be here. We'd love to see you. And please support our show by visiting heritageradionetwork.org and clicking on the beating heart to donate.